in 300 meters. Make a left at the valley. Hey there, Canada. I'm David Fitzgerald, and I took a left at the valley. I woke up this morning Had a burning deep inside I couldn't hear feeling It's all a big lie I feel the pain Let's hunger and despair Stop the rhetoric of your teaching You know, Sharon used to say that this was a good song for walking. I think, <laughs> I think we just saw that there with yeah. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin. I am your host. And with me today, I've got some great people as usual. Hi, Nancy. Hey. And a friend of the podcast, and now 30% more in your face, Sarah is with us. Hello. <laughs> and of course, another friend of the podcast and source of seven essential nutrients, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing good. Excellent. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us. We're going to have a great show today. We're going to talk about deconversion stories and um, what's been going on in the news. Uh, before we get into all this, I want to talk about uh, we've had a couple of weeks now with the new prime minister. And um, what do you guys think? Oh, I'm I'm really jazzed about the whole thing. It was time for a change. I like the young energy. Love the fact that he's got a cabinet that uh, makes up what Canada is all about. So you guys, what, uh, you know, what, what are the high points for you? I'm hoping he opens up a, uh, or I'm hoping he legalizes all drugs so I can open up a store and, you know, <laughs> <some money> and <laughs> Well, one of the notable things he actually did is he seems to be undoing the, what I would call the harm that our previous prime minister did. And one of them was unmuzzling the scientists. And the scientists are incredibly grateful for that. And uh, woohoo, we seem to have an actual Ministry of Science back here. And another thing he also did with that is reintroduce, uh, he's reintroducing the long form census. Now, for a lot of the people that might not realize, uh, the long form census actually has a tendency, uh, it keeps accurate data as to what's going on in Canada on a whole bunch of different things. And uh, this is one of the reasons I, in the future, when we start looking back at some of the years, when we start doing some research of 2013, 2012, you start realizing the data is not really there. You can't seem to find it. And that's because our previous prime minister had decided to cut that. But now with the reintroduction of that, uh, for us skeptics, uh, we want to have good information, good data. That's good for us to have. Yeah, doesn't that uh, in part determine funding and services for various areas? It and does, So yeah. now that the, so many programs have been cut, um, and uh, Trudeau says he's going to back social housing, that may mean a lot for those of us that are involved in, in the homeless and in affordable housing, which would be great. Yeah, and it gives us a, an idea that you know, we might start to make decisions according to the data and science and the principle and not according to ideology as was the uh, what our ex-prime minister used to do. Another thing that was interesting in the news, I want to hear your impression on this, uh, during the sworn-in ceremony, they were swearing in the MPs, apparently almost half of them omitted to say, so help me God. I was not aware of that. Yes. Uh, Justin Trudeau did say it, of course, himself. But apparently half of the MPs that went in there, uh, of course, the, all, we should also mention that half the ministers, the new MPs, are also women. So that's fantastic news, and uh, uh, 
good for us. This is the first time in, in the country's history we're doing this. Right? I think I think the substitute is I swear and affirm. It's I, it's either a combination of those two or one, or one of them. I I, can't, I I read it and then it just flew out of my mind. But yeah. I know it has to do with swear and affirm. But apparently the news is is that half of the, these people, the MPs, have decided not to say. So help me God. So, which is absolutely great news for us in the secular community. But I guess that doesn't necessarily speak to their uh, their religiosity. It may just speak to their interest in having a secular government. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I did read that there are two atheists in the cabinet, but I didn't go far enough to see who they were. Well, in all in all likelihood, there's probably twenty to thirty percent who, who admit. Just, yeah, if you just exactly. Look at general numbers. Whether they're going to say it or not is another. Well, thing. at least it, you know, and they our, don't have to say it no, as long no. as they. You know, uh, govern in a secular manner. That's all that matters. Yeah. Doesn't sure. matter what their personal sure. beliefs are. And for our American neighbors down south, hey, you guys can look at us and start doing the same thing now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Don't hold your breath. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. <laughs> just, I know. Yeah, just we could be helpful. You yeah. know, for we're not following the Americans for once. We're kind of leading them, and yeah. that's where we should be anyway. <laughs> all right, Nancy. Oh, you go. Here we go. This day in history, which as we all know by now is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the dates between October 26th and November the 8th. Um, Starting with October the 26th, it was National Day in Austria, and on this day, lead pencils were first used. Anybody want to take a guess as to what year, because we all know it's graphite, but anybody want to take a guess as to what year they first started to use pencils? <laughs> no. But uh, I do have a great joke about pencils. 1875. Close. 1492. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the closest guess we had. <laughs> yes. I wanted to make you feel good. <laughs> I feel terrible. <laughs> no. I, hard to believe. You know, I guess there were pencils on board the Nina, the Pinta, and the wow. Santa Maria. Wow. Hard, hard to believe. At any rate, in 1881, closer, Jeff, um, it was the gunfight at the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona, which is a great place. A lot of snowbirds go down to Tombstone and get to see reenactments of that almost every day. October the 29th, moving right along, is Coronation Day in Cambodia. And in 1889, Stanley Park was dedicated in Vancouver. There's a lot of Canadian stuff going on in these two weeks, so be, be prepared. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a, a lot of good Canadian um, memorabilia here. 1929, this is not Canadian, but Black Tuesday, the stock market crashed, causing the Great Depression. But in 1942, better better news, the Alaska Highway was open to traffic. And construction began in 1942, completed eight months later. It was improved in 1943 and spans 1,523 miles of highway. And that was officially opened in 1948. And there are a lot of RVs that made that trip before it got paved over yeah. and and lived to tell about it going through the ruts but that was the that was the adventure and there's a magazine that used to be published called the milestone which would help guide people to the uh, the safer spots or how to avoid some of the spots along the way really good magazine when it lasted october the 30th is mischief night or devil's night and in 1938, <laughs> go ahead. Go I just love the way Jeff pointed at Sarah right there. <laughs> Sarah, we're going to have to have you turn your back if this. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, here we go. Um, in 1938, Orson Welles broadcast his radio play of H.G. Wells, but they weren't spelled exactly alike, The War of the Worlds. Does any, do any of you remember The War of the Worlds? I remember that a lot of people thought it was really happening. They, they did. They didn't realize it was fiction. They thought it was a news broadcast. They did. Yeah. And, and, and we're going to recreate just a Come moment of that. Here we go. Turning out of that black hole through luminous disks. Are the eyes, it might be a face. Might be almost oh, heaven. Something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. A story now, moment for sure. I know it's hard to look back when you listen to that and think, how did people ever think this was real? But when you go back and you realize that it was all radio and people, you were so used to listening to news broadcasts. Think about, think about nowadays. Uh, people say stuff on Fox News. Uh, Obama is a Muslim. Everybody believes it. I mean, people just believe stuff. That's right. That's if, you, right. if you hear it, people believe it. Uh, maybe maybe Fox News look, the, the uh, Ailes looks at everybody and says, "Hey, if they believe that, they'll believe this." <laughs> Who knows? It could have could have started the trend for uh, Fox News. Anyway, <laughs> going on. <laughs> thank you, Orson. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> October thirty first was Halloween, as we all know. November the first is World Vegan Day, and the official start of November, where men begin a month-long mustache growing and grooming event for men's health. Anybody gonna start uh, start growing hair, yeah. facial hair? I'm already there. You're already there. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I might do it this year. I might do it this year. Yeah. Why not? Why what about not? you, Sarah? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that would help get you molested in the streets. Exactly. <laughs> You're one of the goals, so I'm, you know, who knows? Tried, I mean, haven't tried it so far. It might work. Might work. I'd work actually. Okay, there's um, a finish for everything. Yeah, that's true. November the first is also the uh, 2013. Uh, um, anniversary of the paperback edition of one of our favorite books on the show, A Manual for Creating Atheists by Peter Bergoshan. And as some of you know, Peter was here um, during the 2014, two, was it 213 or 214? 213. No, it was right, it was right at 214, so it's in, in yeah. January. He came here and, uh, and we had him on the show and we're, the show. we're supposed to have him soon again. Absolutely. So, what, what what do you think would be a great thing to do to celebrate uh, the the book from 2013, Kevin? Well, well we got some extra copies here, and you know what? Uh, first three people that sent us a message via, either via fa- Facebook or via the website or uh, left at Valley at Outlook dot com will send you a copy of Peter Bergogian's book. Hey, that sounds like a good a good thing. His book has gotten more popular since publication, and now he's got an app out, and I think it's he's a fantastic got, Yeah, book. so fantastic. the book should go along with all that. It's a fantastic prize. Good. Well, start start calling in before the end of the show, and who knows, you may have it by next week. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, November the 2nd is a very strange uh, uh, day. It's called Indian Arrival Day in Mauritius, which is in the Indian Ocean, and it celebrates, or uh, commemorates, I guess is a better word, the, um, the Indian population that came to this French um, island to help with uh, various labor uh, shortages that they were having. And even though you may not have heard of it, there's a million people that live in Mauritius. 
1936, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation was established, and it started because the Canadian National Railways was making uh, or had a railroad rail ugh, radio network to keep passengers entertained, and that gave it an advantage over the rival CP. So the CNR radio developed from that, and then uh, the CBC. Good, good things. You are you generally a, a fan of CBC radio or? I think CBC is the best source for news for sure. Do you? Oh, Would, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Consensus. Well, I, I love CBC radio. Uh, when I traveled across the country a lot, a lot of it was on the road. And it, the nice thing about CBC is, as you went from town to town, you would typically lose radio stations, but you would always be able to pick up always CBC. You just have to sort of play, uh, you know, radio hopscotch and, and find the channel. But yeah. you could you could drive for four or five hours and, and watch the same or listen to the same program. It was awesome. Yeah. Thank you, CBC. Yeah. And November the third is Culture Day in Japan, and little pop quiz. In 1925, what Canadian marketed the first quick-frozen fish based on the Inuit method of quick-freezing in Labrador? Please don't let it be Captain Highlander. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Clarence Birdseye. Way back, Birdseye. And Birdseye is still going. Oh, really? Yeah. They still have, I think in the States, I think they have Birdseye frozen foods. Not so much up here. All right. Point for you, Nancy. Yeah. (laughs) I only get points if I do them myself. (laughs) 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 That's cheating, but it feels so good. (laughs) Okay. In 2014, on November the 3rd, a federal court in the states ruled that secular humanists could enjoy the same rights and protections given to Christians and members of other religious groups. Now, the court decision declared that secular humanism is a religion. Now, not all secular humanists are happy with that, but if it gets them benefits that don't detract from their overall vision, most people are happy. Um, And it says, for establishment clause purposes, in essence, the court's ruling grants First Amendment protections to secular humanist organizations. So... That that was it. and that's only that's only a year ago. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's showing. Some There's fun. a lot of atheist group down there and humanist group down there in the states that are actually fighting that, ah. saying you know uh, we don't want to be exact tax exempt, especially in these harsh economic times. Right. Well, they'd be, rather do their patriotic duty, I guess. Be interesting to see how that's resolved because once the Supreme Court rules to try and get it overturned is not going not going to be easy. It's one of these suck it up and live with it. Yeah, I think, yeah exactly. you know. November the fourth is Flag Day in Panama. This is so fascinating. Um, in 1646, the Massachusetts Bay Colony enacted the following law. Got to take a deep breath because this is going to go for a little bit. If a man have a stubborn or rebellious son of sufficient years and understanding, namely at least 16 years of age, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and mother, being his natural parents, lay hold on him and bring him to the magistrates assembled in court and testify unto them, that their son is stubborn and rebellious and will not obey their voice and chastisement, but lives in sundry, notorious crimes. Such a son, here we go, such a son shall be put to death. 
Where was yeah. this? This was in Massachusetts. That wow. sounds almost word for word. Uh, the the Bible's biblical. Uh, yeah. Yeah, almost biblical. Uh, Connecticut adopted the same law in 1650, and Rhode Island did in 1668, and New Hampshire in 1679. What I f- would find interesting is how many parents brought their kids in to be killed. You know, I using that law. That would be interesting. Uh, the law it was called the stubborn child law. I have no idea how many children were actually punished. You know, put to death. Which they looked- may they may have given them less. You know, it may have been just something that they could use as a punishment, but hard to know. But it, 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 it remained on the statute books in Massachusetts for 300 years. The legislature eventually dropped the death penalty and broadened the law to include daughters. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and it was it wasn't repealed until 1973. I think there are a lot of parents that might want to have it brought back at times. <laughs> I certainly I certainly would be here. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's in, in, interesting. I never knew that law was. Yeah. I'll I'll look it up and say I didn't it didn't uh, I didn't say how many were actually punished. But it'd be interesting. Yeah, it really would be interesting. Uh, November the fifth, Guy Fox Day, Guy Fox Night in Britain. Um, the, it, Guy Fawkes is part of gunpowder plot to eliminate King James, and so uh, the bonfire night celebrates the fact that King James, um, they foiled the plot, and King James survived. Uh, November the 6th, I'm taking a deep breath, is International Day for Preventing the Exploitation of the Environment in War and Armed Conflict Day. <laughs> so that's, it's an environmental thing, but it's a long Long, long name. 1879, Canada celebrated the first Thanksgiving Day. So Thanksgiving, I, um, did anybody know why it, it went back to the second uh, I Monday? It, I think, oh, the second Monday? Yeah, in October I rather than... I think it's because that's the day of the week that pencils were invented. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, At least they could put it on their calendar. Put it on the calendar, yeah. <laughs> I, think that, I think I'm going to put that in and it's going to be part of a day in history forever. It sounds right to me. In 2012, this is so cute. In 2012, voters from Athens Clark County, Georgia, voted for Charles Darwin in, in, in the Republican um, election in order to protest the reelection of an anti science fundamentalist named Paul Brown. He was a Republican, and he was a medical doctor. He ran unopposed um, for uh, a spot in the U.S. Uh, represented in, in Congress. And he actually sat on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, and he was a creationist. So on September 27th, Braun actually had expressed his contempt for the true meaning of science research when he called evolution and the Big Bang Theory lies straight from the pit of hell. I know. Isn't that amazing? Nice. Sounds like sounds like Ben Carson. I was going to say, sounds like <laughs> Ben Carson for sure. So he was, he was saying that to a Baptist church, and um, at that point, a biology professor named Jim Liebens Mack promoted the write-in campaign to protest the incongruity of an anti-science fundamentalist being on that kind of a committee. So Charles Darwin got 4,000 votes, which was, I think, of you know pretty good showing however braun got reelected and he got 209,217 votes hmm. so obviously there were a lot of people who were really ready for ben carson to <laughs> to come along unfortunately yeah okay november the 8th 
which is our uh, today, it's tomorrow, I'm sorry, International Radiology Day, and that's William Renshin's birthday. And in 1895, William Renshin first observed x-rays during an experiment um, in Germany and uh, notified other sciences of his discovery. And from 1895 to today, radiation has been uh, a valuable tool for diagnostics and for cure because we've gone from our general radiation to high-tech radiation called proton therapy um, that has produced the gamma knife and stereotactic body radiation therapy, which is an intense, focused form of radiation therapy that actually kills tumors exactly the same as surgery without uh, most of the side effects and recovery time. You know, that sounds like a topic for a show, actually. It does. We should uh, take a look into that. Yeah. Thank you, William Renshin. And that, dear listeners, talking about another show brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre events and people that make up this day in history. Thank you so much, Nancy, and we'll be right back right after this. Tired of being misunderstood or misrepresented? As a public service, the crew from Left at the Valley proudly presents Know Your Fallacies with Mark Cunningham. Good evening. I've taken time out of my busy schedule to briefly explain to you, the three thinker, the finer points of logical fallacies. With some practice, attention to detail, and of course, my guidance, you will easily be able to disarm any fobbing, hasty-witted fustelarian who dares to cross linguistic blades with you. Today, let's look at the simplest attack a mammering lout would use, the ad hominem. Ad hominem fallacies involve attacking the person rather than the argument, e.g., by casting aspersions on that person's character or associating the person with their distasteful ideology. Kevin is French. What does he know about personal hygiene? This is a logical fallacy. Because the fact that a person is repugnant does not mean that they are wrong. Attacking your character when stating facts is a clear sign of desperation from your unmuzzled, plume-pucked opponent. Make sure you resist the temptation to do the same. Note that not every use of personal remark qualifies as an ad hominem. Consider the following remarks that one might make towards a young Earth creationist. You'd have to be an idiot to believe the Earth is 6,000 years old. In the case of the first sentence, a personal insult was used. However, the reason for the insult was based on the arguments being made. Furthermore, the insult follows from the disagreement, not the other way round. An ad hominem is generally a non sequitur. The argument technique used is overly emotional, and the assertion of idiocy may be wrong, but it is not an ad hominem. Then there is this sort of argument. William Dembski is a mathematician, not a scientist. Why would we take his disbelief about evolution seriously? This is also a personal remark about Dembski, yet it is directly relevant to the subject of the argument. Since Dembski is often used as a source of an argument from authority, it is certainly relevant to the question of his credentials. A person who has not studied science is, indeed, less qualified to act as an expert about evolution. Now, go forth, my friends, and remember, 
Knowledge is power, and the one who knows this wins. Until next time. Well, what do you guys think of that? Like Mark's uh, pompous over the top. I like he's laid it on a little thicker than normal. I like that. I like that, that. That added to it. I, I, it. Nobody else could have done it quite that well, I don't think. No, you know, no one else could have gotten through all those words as grace, <laughs> gracefully as he exactly, did. Exactly, exactly. That was awesome. I was trying so hard to make him wear a top hat and a monocle <laughs> while doing this. Somehow the British accent just makes him sound sexier. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if it uh, makes any difference, uh, I, I actually visualize him wearing all that stuff. So oh, I can, okay, yeah. perfect, perfect. I'm here. <laughs> well, um, you know, uh, while while I we were talking about uh, you were talking about the pencil, I couldn't help but I wanted to say you, you guys have heard that uh, that old joke about the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, the Americans coming in and they wanted to invent something they could write in outer space. So they, they spent like millions of dollars on a pen that could write upside down in mm-hmm. zero gravity and all that. And the Russians brought a pencil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That is funny. Uh, before we go into our, our, our usual uh, things that make you go, hmm, and all that kind of stuff, Jeff, uh, I wanted to talk to you quickly about, so you've been on the forefront of the battle for the homeless and a couple of weeks ago when we did the Halloween show, there was news coming out that the uh, they basically won a court battle. Do you want to fill us in on what was been going on there? Uh, Nancy and I uh, have been actually carry, carrying the torch uh, over the last little while, as, as well as uh, some of the other board members as well. Um, as, as far as the, uh, the, the court case, I, I think the most significant thing is that the city of Abbotsford, their bylaw to prevent um, the, the use of public parks for... for uh, sl- sleeping has been struck down as unconstitutional. So that's going to basically open the door for people who have nowhere to sleep to spend the night in our public parks. Now, I, I don't think, to my knowledge, in fact, I was speaking with Ward uh, just a few days ago, he doesn't know of any of, of the folks that have taken it, uh, that up, and I think that's largely because a lot of the encampments in town haven't been acted upon. So wherever people are set up and staying, that's pretty much where they are. Um, it looks as though, and Nancy might have a bit more information on this, that the city is putting together a plan to try to shut down some of these camps, especially the large one on Gladys, and you might see some fallout from that. Perhaps some of the folks uh, are going to take it upon themselves to move into the, the parks. And in fact, if, uh, if we know Barry Shantz at all, he will, he will do that specifically. Uh, even if it's not necessarily in the best interest of the people, he will do it to, to pro- you know, provoke people. So I think that's maybe what we're going to see next is that uh, the city comes up with a plan shuts down some of these camps, and then you'll see people moving into parks. What happens next, uh, you know, it's anybody's best guess. Uh, sure, there's been a lot of people talking uh, about that. Uh, a lot of people not happy, uh, saying that, you know, what's what's next? Our parks should be nice and clean. Like, somehow they feel that having homeless people sleeping in parks is a bad thing. But I also understand the court saying, you know, even though you're homeless doesn't mean you're not paying any taxes. And if you're paying taxes, whether it's sales tax or whatever, what kind of tax, you have a right to have access to those parks. I'm not sure if that was their argument. I didn't, I didn't read any of the transcripts. Um, I think it, it, it probably came down to the Canadian Charter and human rights and things like that. And we just didn't, you know, the courts probably didn't feel like they wanted to be the type of society that didn't give people options. Now, it's not really a practical option, though, because I believe that um, they have, they're allowed to be there. Or they, can, they can be there after 7 p.m., but they have to be gone by 9 a.m. And, I, you know, if you understand anything about these people's lifestyles, um, they don't, you know, 
spring out of bed at 7.30 in the morning, like a lot of us that are going to work in the morning. Um, it's going to be pretty impractical if they've got tents set up and things like that. You get out of bed at 7.30 in the morning? I was talking about most of us. Okay, not, okay. Yeah, not right. me. Like, not me. No. Oh, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, it's interesting. The, the court, the, the decision was actually based in part on um, Adams, I think it's Adams versus Victoria, because Victoria has had a ruling over the past, for, for at least a year. Um, and the um, the uh, idea, not the idea, but the, the facts behind the ruling is that cities establish parks for public use. And whether they're activities for families or, or for uh, recreation or whatever, but they're part of uh, what the city is provided for all of all of the citizens, and they're generally uh, free. Um, the city is also supposed to provide uh, adequate shelter uh, for those who are homeless. And, and if the city does not have adequate shelter spaces for uh, the homeless, then the only recourse is for the city to give them public land. Uh, it's kind of uh, morphing from the city providing uh, public shelters for the homeless to um, n- using public land. So that's the um, that was behind the order. It already went to, into effect in Victoria, and the latest newspaper article on it is that it's a nightmare trying to get people um, out in the morning and to clean up. Uh, the, the mess and so forth and so on. So uh, the, the the other part of the ruling is that the judge realized that he could only rule very narrowly. He can't make cities provide housing, affordable housing or shelter. But one thing he can do is to say, yes, you can sleep on public land in hopes that would motivate the cities to do something more than just chasing them from one place to the next and treating them like criminals. Maybe we should do something like Australia. In Australia, they, by law, they actually the government will fine cities if they have homeless people in them. So it kind of forces the city to take care of the homeless. Well, it, it it depends. I think the whole thing boils down to a will to want to do this and a, a, a political will to do it. And uh, for nonprofits and other organizations, service organizations to step up and provide the the housing and the, the services that um, this population uh, is desperately in, in need of. So it's it's ongoing. Uh, you guys are probably familiar, you may, you may or may not be familiar with the study that uh, Mental Health Canada did a couple years ago, it concluded a couple years ago, and what they found was that for every $10 invested in a community to subsidize housing for homeless people, they saved $9.60 on emergency health care and policing. So, and, and these were cities with high rent districts like Vancouver, Halifax, things like that, not Abbotsford. So basically it costs the same amount for a city to leave them on the streets as it does to put them in, a, in, a, in an apartment. Um, so to me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at this. You can look at this as a uh, charitable type of thing, like you want to take care of your fellow citizens, or you can look at it from a conservative perspective and say, hey, it's we're spending the money anyways. Why not spend it in such a way that we can, uh, you know, these camps aren't good for the homeless people where, where they're living now, and it's not necessarily good for the citizens. And we, we don't want to see that on our boulevards and in our parks. So to me, it's a no-brainer, depending on how you want to look at the situation. Well, I'll even almost challenge that number you were seeing there because what you might not have factored in there is the city, like Abbotsford did, spent a lot of money fighting them. 
So oh. at, at that point, they're actually saving money by actually taking care of the homeless. N- not only that, um, there are many uh, plans out there, like Abbotsford Dignitarian so- uh, Society that uh, Nancy and I are involved with. Our plan for housing is probably one quarter the cost of a traditional you know, apartment or whatever. So to subsidize that type of a village, like we have uh, in, in many in the U.S., like Dignity Village, to subsidize something like that, or even to allow it to exist on donations and things like that, is going to immediately solve problems in terms of cleaning up some of these parks... Uh, are these camp uh, camps that um, are often you know not very healthy? They don't have proper services, things like that. Garbage uh, builds up. They're in areas where they're not supposed to be, and then you're going to put people in safer situations. So uh, it's been so, it's been a fight that Nancy and I've been um, been sort of battling with for about two years now, and um, it's hard to say uh, you know what's going to happen next. Wow. Well, speaking of garbage, a <laughs> nice, nice segue. Yeah. Actually, I've got a story, and I want your opinion on this. No, I was laughing because when you said that you were looking at me and I thought, oh, <laughs> now what now, did I do? <laughs> you cannot turn your joke back, my joke back on me. You cannot do that. Did you guys hear the story about, you know the Duggars? Yes. Did you guys hear the story about the Duggars are to be a keynote speaker at a 2016 Alberta homeschool convention? No. Yes. <laughs> I know, it just gets fun. Uh, so the article says that this is from the CBC. Uh, reality TV and tabloid regulars Jim Bob and Michelle Duggars plan on visiting Alberta, Jim Bob, in the spring to give advice to other uh, to other parents who homeschool their children. The uh, Duggar family, which has been essentially clouded in controversy since May, uh, when TLC uh, canceled the reality TV show 19 and counting, and their eldest son admitting having molested four of his sisters when he was a teenager. Despite this, the couple is scheduled to be the keynote speakers at a 2016. Alberta Home Education Convention in the spring. Um, we do look for absolutely perfect speakers because, well, we're human, but who's perfect? And, you know, those are essentially excuses. Um, you guys have any thoughts on this? I'm just appalled. I have no thoughts. I'm just appalled. I don't <laughs> claim to be perfect, but I've managed to avoid uh, molesting any family members. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the comments from Sarah, not necessarily those of Letha Valley and subsidiaries. Yeah, so <laughs> wasn't he? Wasn't one of those family uh, Duggars? Weren't they the guys that got exposed in that uh, online affair? Ashley Madison? Right. Yes. Yeah, 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 that was one of them. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, while the Duggars were initially hired to share their unique experience homeschooling, unique, sound yeah. unique, many children at once, uh, they, uh, they believed that uh, they would also speak openly about childhood sexual abuse. Uh, the, this, this did happen. It was a terrible, tragic thing, he said. We hope that the Duggars will speak out about what happened. And they're basically saying that it was too late for them to cancel. So they're going ahead and doing this. Um, what the hell is wrong with these people? Well, it sounds like they've got a lot of experience with uh, the sexual misconduct uh, part, <sighs> part. I don't know. This is the kind of stuff that we should... I don't know. Should we have make an appeal for anybody at immigration to say, no, no, stop them at the border. <laughs> Tell them to turn no, we, around. We believe in free speech, right? <sighs> Let them speak. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let them speak. No, I agree in terms of free speech. I just think it, you know... It's a private event. It, 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 it's, it's a, a private, private event. event. It's, it's a like private event. It's got nothing event. to do with anybody. It's a private yeah. event. Uh, okay. Okay. Fair enough. So uh, was, hopefully nothing too bad happens. I didn't know if it was even a convention for homeschoolers. Really? This is like, oh, it's yeah. big enough. There's a, a it's convention. A, it's a it's a big big movement. I'd be I, curious I, to see numbers on that. I didn't know it was that big. 
Just because there's a convention doesn't mean it's that big. I mean, okay. you could, could be talking about like 5,000 people showing up. I mean, well, if they have enough, well, still, still 5,000 people representing. Well, in a, in a province like Alberta, there's millions of people there. It's a pretty small percentage of, it's not, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's impactful. Now, if it's, if it's a growing thing, then that might be something to consider, but I, I can't believe it is. Hopefully we'll have to keep an eye on that. Yeah. So today we're talking about deconversion stories. And I thought, uh, I've got a couple of recording. I've got, uh, I went around my little recording device. I recorded a few people from the FVS group. Um, and uh, also some of us have some stories. Some of us don't because some of us were actually uh, raised uh, secular for, from the get-go. So do we want to go with the uh, recordings first? Or do we want to talk about our personal stories here in the studio first? I'd say recordings first and then we can sort of follow up with it. Okay. Let's see what we got. I Okay. Our first uh, our first uh, deconversion story is about our friend in Chilliwack, the Reform, with his Reformation report. So let's go with that. All right. So I'm here with our friend, the Reformed, but it doesn't sound right. Let's play it, that song there. Now we're talking. All right. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you doing? Good. I was thinking I could, uh, for our show, you, I could ask you a few questions about how you got deconverted, how you went from being a believer to a non-believer. Sounds good. Um, answer any questions you want. By all means. <laughs> so what? give us a, a quick, you know, Reader's Digest version of what happened to you. Um, in short, I've been uh, raised as a, in a Christian family. Uh, been, my mom is very proud of the fact that I've been in church since I was three weeks old. And, um, yeah. Um, three weeks old? That's early indoctrination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it pretty much was. And, um, yeah, probably about... Three or four years ago, I started kind of questioning the um, the uh, the idea of suffering and why God lets um, God lets a lot of this shit happen to people. Um, the job that I worked at at the time um, it was uh, it was pretty heavy duty, and I witnessed a lot of uh, nasty abuses within the within the community, and uh, I just couldn't couldn't rectify or I couldn't reconcile reconcile yes the word yeah the idea that um, if there was a God that he would uh, he would let this shit happen so I started reading and researching and um, lo and behold I became an atheist well you recorded the research was there a particular book you were researching first or did you go like from the Bible directly to um, actually I read um, uh, God is not great by Richard uh, by Christopher Hitchens oh, that was that was the first book uh, I actually read actually I read his book, but I also listened to. I started listening to debates online. I started listening to um, uh, debates actually through a Christian podcast site, which is really weird. Uh, and it was debates with people like uh, uh, Richard Dawkins and also Richard Holloway and uh, Christopher Hitchens, obviously. And yeah, so as I started listening and I started kind of adding up the things that I had been taught against the things that I was now learning, and I realized that there was some. There were some huge holes, and so, yeah, I just didn't, I just, just slowly came to the point where I didn't believe anymore. That was interesting. Some some Christian debates on their on their podcast, <clears throat> and they're playing stuff against Richard Dawkins, and they're, of course, they're, I don't know, they're spinning that in some way, because it doesn't seem like they could possibly stand up to somebody like Dawkins or Hitchens. Yeah, the, the podcast was actually, um, I think it's called Unbelievable, and it's out of the U.K., um, and all I actually did was um, I was uh, I just kind of Googled uh, or you know searched under the podcasts for the different authors like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and uh, 
and came across this podcast and started listening to it. And yeah, I mean, it's 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 a pretty balanced podcast series, but it is it is a Christian podcast site. And uh, yeah, if only they knew <laughs> they they helped in the formation of my deconversion. <laughs> but actually, one of the other books I, I actually read because books is my big thing. Um, I was reading a book by a gentleman by the name of Richard Holloway. And Richard Holloway, I actually I saw him first on BBC News. They did a, a, a little news piece on him. And Richard Holloway used to be the bishop, uh, the archbishop, sorry, sorry, the bishop of Edinburgh in Scotland. And he wrote a book many years ago about uh, morality without God. And it basically got him kicked out of the church. Um, they stripped him of his, uh, of his uh, bishop's position as a bishop. And um, because he basically said that you can have morality without God, and that totally went against what the church had always taught. Um, he was also uh, very pro-gay rights um, and very pro-women's rights, which again, within the Anglican church at that time, uh, was really just not the norm. And so anyway, I watched this interview with him, and then I read his his uh, his life story, Leaving Alexandria. And um, this is a man who was in the pulpit teaching people about God and then one day he just realized that there was an absence and that absence was the fact that there was no God and uh, yeah so I think probably it was probably his book was the real kickoff and then I read the Christopher Hitchens book uh, God is not great so yeah a solid one two punch yeah alright buddy thanks a lot alright bye bye Well, there it is. What do you guys think? Uh, I think it's just uh, ironic that uh, that uh, the Christian website uh, had that, this information uh, that promoted for him, and that led him to uh, all this information that changed his mind. It's quite uh, quite ironic. Yeah, I was I was shocked by his revelation that you know they're playing interviews with with Dawkins and Hitchens and all that. I said, really? That's like <laughs> that's like really taking the bull by the horns. And for them, I was actually surprised they would do that. If you've ever listened to that guy, I forget his name, but he referred to a, a, a UK podcast called Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. And it is, a, it is a Christian broadcast, but the broadcaster is ridiculously fair. He is very even-handed. He seems very secular, very logical and level-headed. Uh, and he brings on a lot. Of, he he brings on like Bart Ehrman, uh, Lawrence Krauss, all, all all of the you know the typical people that would show up at our conventions. He's on. This guy has them all on there. So I definitely recommend his podcast if, uh, for sort of a different angle. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, Nancy, you yourself, uh, you you weren't raised. Well, I mean, you culturally Jewish, I guess, is what you believe the proper yeah, way of saying it. I, I am. I mean, I'm a, I, I guess you'd say I'm a non-believing Jew, and there are a lot of secular Jews like me mm-hmm. they, because they feel, like like I do, they feel very attached to Judaism, to the history, to the culture. Um, there's a lot that's there, but well, they just As a little girl, you weren't raising a... No, my grandparents were religious, um, and then they immigrated to the States, and back in the early 20s, um, most Jews wanted to integrate. That's why a lot of last names like Goldblum or Goldberg were changed to Gold or Green. Uh, people didn't didn't want to be identified. They wanted to fit in. And there was some anti-Semitism as well. But um, my parents were part of the generation where uh, they thought that religion was fine for the older people, but now they're in a new society and it didn't make any difference. So, but 
the time I came along and my brothers came along, we um, then had um, relatives who married um, out of the Jewish faith. We had Catholic relatives. We had uh, Christian um, uh, Protestant relatives. And it was like being blue-eyed, blonde-haired. You, you noticed it but there was never any other discussion about it. Mm. So we were very um, um, liberal and uh, very accepting of everybody's religion, mostly because we never talked about it. It didn't make any difference whatsoever. So I never had uh, an idea of God. I never had a belief system that was um, preached to me or said that I had to. When we would have the Jewish holidays, they were observances because we were Jews and we were tied to those historical events. The fact that there was the, the, the Torah and the Old Testament, that's fine, but they were mostly stories to get you to the point where you lived um, an ethical uh, and, and humanist, really an ethical and humanistic life. So, so, so for those of us that never caught it, uh, you were actually American. You were born in the States, right? Yeah, I was. But, oh, right. But then... <laughs> but then <laughs> But, but then I got intelligent and knew where where I belonged, and here I am. <laughs> but when you were playing with your, your schoolmates and your playmates as, as a young girl, was it really on their sleeve as much as it is today? No, it was in Chicago, and it really didn't make any difference. I mean, you, people talked about what church they went to, but it was like going to the movies. You went to the movies, you went to church— but there was no discussion of the beliefs. If you had a Catholic friend like I did and you went to church with them, you noticed that there were nuns and there was a lot of pomp and ceremony. And there were times when I envied her. Gosh, why, you know, why don't we have all those pretty windows? <laughs> you know, uh, why, why can't we have women that, you know, that, that dress in, in lovely costumes like this? So, but the belief behind it was never one that was, was brought out to either show differences or similarities. The only time that it became an issue was when the family moved from Chicago to Dallas. Now we were thrown into the pool with the uh, the Southern Baptists, and at that point it was, what church do you belong to? And I became uh, a person who was at the top of the prayer list of practically yeah. everybody, <laughs> every Southern Baptist <laughs> in the city of Dallas and Fort Worth. So th then it, it, the people did wear it on their sleeves. and um, But at that point, I was pretty well a confirmed Unitarian Universalist. And uh, mostly they, they thought I was different, and it affected their relationships with me. But I just sort of tolerated it, and it amused me how they were. Fair enough. Uh, well, we got a female number two, Sarah. I mean, let's make the comparison. You were born here in the country, in Canada. Yes, so let's I make the comparison with your childhood. You were not raised in the church either? No, I wasn't. So uh, let's compare your experience with, with Nancy here. Um, well, I know a lot of uh, my friends growing up thought I was going to go to hell, and they told me, and uh, they <laughs> prayed for me as well. And though I always remember thinking it was bizarre. Like, I had some fairly religious neighbors that I hung out with, and like, the they didn't believe in dinosaurs and you know i somehow the conversation of dinosaurs came up and the, you know i'm saying but there are museums with their bones and stuff and you know my mom eventually you know calling out to us look you're both right shut up uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh like you know i just found it such a bizarre thing you know and, you know uh this whole idea this you know there's a guy watching over us and 
managed to create the earth in a few days. And... Don't you know that the bones of the dinosaurs are put there by the devil? Really? <laughs> Absolutely. Did you know that? I guess I am the devil now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you put those bones there too? <laughs> so so that was it, essentially? You, yeah. you, it was weird because you... You know, like... Yeah. You, you you grew up here in the area, Yeah, right? I grew up here in the area, and, you know, I don't think I met another atheist until high school. Wow. Uh, I mean, besides my family. Uh, and, uh, you That's know, interesting. Yeah, and, like, I remember growing up, my parents saying, oh, yeah, you know, if you want to go to church, well, there's one down the street, too. But now they say, you know, realistically, if we said anything anti-gay or anti-female or, well, they'd probably... That would be the one situation where they'd probably kill us, uh, quite honestly. Mm. Uh, you know. Okay. Okay. Yet somehow it's okay with the religious people, you know. And all right, let's listen up to uh, anonymous uh, deconversion story from uh, one of our friends at, at Viash. All right, so we're talking about deconversion stories. So anonymous storyteller number one, what's yours? <laughs> Well, I was uh, 20 years old, and my sister died. It was a, a sudden, unexpected thing. And from that, I started asking questions about religion. I was raised Lutheran. Lutheran? And, yeah. And, really? And uh, I was confirmed in Lutheran church and all that. My, my parents went every Sunday. And uh, after my sister died, I, I had lots of talks with my pastor about it, asking questions, you know. And some of the answers were off-putting. <laughs> so... I started to dig into it. I started to look at resources online and things and, and start trying to find answers to these questions about, you know, why would God do this? Why would he take my sister away? And all that kind of stuff. Can you give um, me an example of those off-putting questions? I mean, was, it, yeah. the answer wasn't satisfactory is what you're saying. Right. So, like, questions like, why would God do this? My sister was only 18 years old. Yeah. And uh, she had her whole life ahead of her. She had just graduated high school. And uh, the pastor's answer to it was, you know, it's God's plan. We just don't know his plan. And, you know, he's kind of doing what's best for everybody. But that didn't make any sense to me. It's like, she's 18 years old. How can it be somebody's plan that when she really starts her life that she's, she's gone? So, uh, yeah, I started asking questions, lots of questions, and uh, coming up with additional questions myself, like things like, well, if our religion is, is true, you know, Christianity is true, why are there other religions on the other side of the planet, you know, where it's completely different? Um, doesn't make any sense. And as a result of that, I found, you know, everything came down to faith. You know, you have to have faith to believe. And that wasn't a good enough answer for me. I, I realized that every religion can say the same thing. You need to have faith. Um, and if every religion has the same requirement, how do you know which of those religions is true? And so over time, and it took about six years, uh, it started to become more apparent that it's more likely that it's false than it's true. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I started to find local atheist groups and... Uh, you know, meet up with other like-minded people and stuff to start to make a lot more sense. Cool. Excellent. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, so that was our anonymous uh, storyteller number one. We won't mention his name on the air. Now, I, I the, law, the loss of uh, somebody close to him, right? And I can't help but think that, you know, if he tells that story to a, a religious fellow, the first thing they'll tell him would be probably, well, you just ain't great God. You know, it's funny. I, I think people in our community might think that we might be more moved by a lot of the scientific arguments or a lot of the logical arguments or contradictions in the Bible. These these types of things are very compelling to us. But I've heard of a lot of people 
of faith that that lose their faith because of the problem of evil and why do bad things happen? That whole concept is something that's real because it, it's a very emotional thing, mm-hmm. and it sounds like that was the case for this guy. Um, I, re- I remember uh, Bart Ehrman. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yep, absolutely. He's a biblical scholar, and he was a uh, a very conservative, born again Christian, and he went to uh, seminary and he was studying the Bible and. He wrote a lot. He, he researched the Bible as much as anybody in contemporary society, and um, you know he he discovered a lot of the contradictions and errors and all these different things. But he said that's not what made him lose his faith. Faith it was the problem of suffering and evil in the world. He just couldn't rationalize how a good God could let all this happen. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Although personally, I, I don't know about you guys, but I hate that term losing your faith. I really hate that because you're not really losing anything. I think of it more as gaining reason. Yeah, because absolutely. It, it's yeah. not like I've lost something precious here. You know, all of a sudden I'm not, I don't believe in God. I haven't lost anything precious. I'm not less of a person. And well, I really, you hate that term. Yeah, no, I, I feel I feel the same way. Especially the idea of atheism is the whole idea of atheism being something. Atheism is nothing. It's just one thing you don't believe in. Yeah, you know, the, it's not a movement. It's not. Uh, they try to create a false dichotomy by saying it's a worldview. Yeah, well, yeah. Either you're religious or you're an atheist, and there's all these things that atheists believe, but that's not the case, really. No, no. I've always said that. Atheism is just a simple answer to one question. Yeah. That's what it is. It's yeah. nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. The, the other part of his story um, hit home with me as well, because I, too, remember as a teenager hearing people talk about um, people of different faiths, and then you think, and then the question would come up, well, if you have someone in the in the deepest, darkest heart of Africa and they've never heard of Jesus Christ, are they going to go to heaven? And that always seems such a ridiculous argument that here we all are on the same planet. You know, we're all human beings, and yet if you and if there's a God and you're in one part of the world, that means you're not going to heaven. I think that really started an, an intellectual journey for me of trying to figure out what in the heck is going on with people's beliefs and how can you be inclusive and exclusive and uh, have so many different sects. And I think that cemented to me that we made religion mm-hmm. and there there was no god but it it was put you know into our into our minds for reasons other than trying to unify us you know as a human species there's this wonderful little meme that's going on facebook that makes around once in a while and there's this picture of this uh, elderly inuit fellow that ask ask a priest you know if i didn't know about sin and god would i go to hell and the priest tells him well no then uh, and the inuit says well why did you tell me then you know, and that's that makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like incredible logic right there. Then why did you tell me? You know, <laughs> you should just let me be. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the next uh, next uh, little story I've got is uh, from our, our old friend Jim. Of course, he came out of Islam. So let's see what he says. So you, of course, were born in the Middle East. Yes, and uh, you were essentially indoctrinated in Islam. Yes, and today you're an atheist. Yes. Tell me a bit about that process. How, how did that happen? Uh, there are a bunch, I mean, several layers to Islam. You first have to believe in that there is a God and there is only one. And do back on? No, go for it. And the second layer is to believe that uh, Muhammad is the prophet of God and his religion is Islam. The third level is to believe in an afterlife. Uh, there is a fourth and fifth level, but those are for the Shia faith. Uh, these three that I just told you are the things for Islam. Uh, I had to basically go through these one by one uh, to uh, 
as in going by in a process of elimination because uh, once you stop believing in any factor, you stop being a Muslim. So I believe that there is a life after life. Uh, that that is something that is uh, the Muslims have it, Christians have it, and once you go and get rid of it, uh, the process is the same, similar for all. For the second layer, uh, which was uh, Muhammad and Islam, uh, that I had to go and study the history of Islam and the actions uh, that Muhammad took, and then apply simple, basic logic to those actions and see whether those make sense. Uh, that a person who would commit such acts uh, in terms of genocide, killings, rape, uh, that this kind of person would be a person that I would follow. The first layer, which is about the existence of uh, God or not, is something that, uh, like many other agnostic atheists, I am struggling with on a daily basis. That's not unique uh, to me, and stories are very similar to everyone that has to go with them. So did you go in, the, in, those, in those layers? Did you start by doubting the existence of an afterlife, and then doubting Muhammad, and then doubting God altogether? Uh, two and three. Uh, the... the Doubting Muhammad is pretty much very. Um, uh, started. It's very started uh, because it starts. Uh, the questions that did the trick were uh, after I read Christopher Hitchens's book God is Not Great. Uh, so that book gave me a whole lot of questions that I had never even considered. When I went through those questions, and then there were many others. Uh, there's a certain core that is unique to Islam and that is mutual to Islam and Christianity. So when, when you deal with, when you're hearing arguments against Christianity, those same arguments apply to Islam as well. The ones that are unique to Islam are basically Muhammad and Quran mm -hmm. and all that. And those um, have a shaking effect basically on a person's faith. Hmm, okay. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. Sure. All right, so Christopher Hitchens strikes again. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I just listening to that, something just just struck me. You know how a lot of uh, religious people, when when you um, you know put your faith in Jesus, they'll they'll refer to you as being saved. You know, Christopher Hitchens saved people. Yeah, <laughs> in a way. You know, we all we all want to go through our life. I don't know if this. As I'm getting a bit older, I I think about geez, you know. I want to do some good in my life, and that's part of the reason that motivated me to be part of that board. I want to do something good for some somebody else. And you just think about a guy like Christopher Hitchens and, and all these authors, Dawkins, Harris, Dennett. They're literally saving people's lives, freeing them from this this belief system. It's it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, personally, I think he's my favorite, and I I. I I really hate the idea that I actually discovered him after he passed away. Oh boy! I wish I wish I could have had a chance to meet the man. I'll tell you, I I remember the day that I heard the news, and I I literally was brought to tears, and I just felt like because prior to that, I would get on the internet all the time because he was just such a prolific guy, and he was on all the news programs saying one thing or the other about world events because he was such a thoughtful, uh, you know, intelligent person. And I would just I would welcome these little clips, you know, two minute clips of him on this news oh, program yes. or that program, uh, not to mention any you know debates or anything like that. And uh, when when he was finally um, pronounced dead, I mean that was a very very sad sad time. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, your turn. You want to tell us your story? Yeah, it's not it's not really a, a, a deconversion. Um, I, I have an interesting upbringing. My father's an atheist, and my mother is a is a Christian. 
I always, I never really thought about it when I was younger, but now at, at this age, I think that that's a really strange relationship. The the fact that the the two people with such diametrically opposed ideas on such a big topic could have a such a wonderful life together. But they're both a little bit interesting. Um, my father thinks religion is good, and it's a little bit of a condescending view because he thinks that some people need it. Not him, of course, but some people need it. <laughs> and my mother has a sort of a warped sense of Christianity because she knows my father's such a good guy, he, she thinks he's getting in anyway. So <laughs> they, they just don't talk about it, and it's a wonderful thing. Um, for me... So your mom's going to be the advocate for your father when... She's going to be the advocate, yeah. The, de- the devil. Peter or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, I remember my mom teaching us the Lord's Prayer. I remember maybe even praying, probably for Christmas gifts and things like that. Um, but I think my, um, you know, belief in any God went about the same time that Santa Claus went. So um, I've been pretty much a scientific, secular person my whole life. We, I, we never went to church other than weddings. It wasn't really a part of our life. So you just came to it by yourself, you know, you, you didn't, you, there was no outside influence. You just, Santa Claus went and then you said, you know, why not Jesus? Yeah, well, I never even thought about it. It just sort of happened, you know. I mean, why, um, you know, when did we, when did you stop believing in Santa Claus? I don't even remember. It just sort of happened and it's probably about the same time. Um, you know, I took uh, I took all the scientific courses in high school and it just, you start learning how the world is and that's just the way it is and uh, I never really thought about religion much. You guys are all smarter than me. It took me way longer than that. <laughs> but before we go to my story, let's go to another story, our anonymous uh, storyteller number two, and this is an uh, older gentleman. All right, anonymous story number three. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing... Uh, I think emotionally well, as I said, but I, my physical condition is deteriorating now, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry about that, but it's simply the way oldness comes. <laughs> when you get old, you get decrepit. Fair enough. So what was your deconversion story? I mean, you, you were a, a believer. Uh, the word deconversion, I understand it, but in my case, I like the word change. I like the word progression. I like the word growth, uh, becoming, especially becoming. I've written a book called Becoming Takes a Lifetime, and I like that. Deconversion, I understand it. Uh, I also understand conversion. I thought I did. If deconversion is the opposite to conversion, then I don't know what conversion is. For me, my conversion as a boy was always the same. Just say the words and you will come to believe what you are saying. But I never did. And so whether I've ever really been a a Christian, I don't know. I can't answer that. So you were going through the motions, but you weren't feeling it. I wasn't feeling it. Okay, okay. And when did you finally decide to release yourself from the shackles of that? It came at a conference in Africa where I was the leader of a plenary conference consisting of all the blacks that we had contact with as a mission organization. And there I wrote a paper that I thought was good and which 
separated the expatriate missionary from governing and controlling the African extension of our mission, our churches, etc. And that paper was approved and then rejected by the field committee. The chairman rejected it. And he was a friend of mine, a fellow tennis player, a good guy. And when I got to the conference, the delegates asked me for that paper. They knew about it because one of their men, we were half white, half black, Mm -hmm. the committee. And the, the black guys knew the paper existed. They had contributed to it, and so they spread the word that the paper... And there's an an adjunct to that, but I I won't go into how it got to the mission station by subterfuge. (laughs) But it got there. And then they asked me to read it, contrary to what the mission said. And I was between a rock and a hard place. Either I stay as a missionary, or I go with the crowd and go home. Because mm. it was that serious. Money was involved, personalities and so on, and I went with the people. What was the paper about? How to be free of the missionary. Oh, I see. Kick the missionary out. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty bold. And that's very bold. And that was it. That's what clinched it for you. That's what set off the routine of me going home. I left for good missionary work because I knew it was colonially uh, uh, poisoned. Yeah, so uh, that was an interesting story right there. This this gentleman, when you talk to him, you always get the impression right away that he had a very, very interesting life. And it's interesting that he deconverted, I guess, while he was doing missionary work. Yeah, it's interesting because you get the very slow, measured words, and yet the pictures and the thoughts and the understanding of what happened is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And but his words are so soft, you know. It's just a, it's a great dichotomy, and it, it I, I think it brings what he did, it makes it more powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've often wondered how many uh, people who work, you know, in like clergy. As clergy, uh, you know, if they if they actually believe what some of what they say, but you know, just have so much to lose. Have you ever heard of the clergy project? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Daniel exactly. Dennett right. Uh, is that on the Dawkins website or who who, who supports Daniel that? Daniel C. Dennett. Is it Daniel Dennett? Yeah. Okay, and uh, I think also you had that people like uh, not Jerry Coyne, but Jerry Dewitt was part of it too. And uh, anyway. Well, he was a minister. Right? He, I think he, he was. was he was. He, he went through, right? Yeah, he went yeah. through the program, and now yeah. he's helping with that today. So a, a, an interesting story from this gentleman, too. My story now. <laughs> I guess you might want to sit back with that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was born in Quebec. Now, in Quebec, everybody's Roman Catholic. Uh, and you can tell, because even if you study some of the history of Quebec... Uh, what they used to do is they used to take a couple of settlers from a big city, like Quebec City, and they would just go into the wilderness with some priest, and the priest would just pop in. And this is what they actually teach you in history class, right? The priest would pop in and say, okay, uh, in Jesus' name, whatever, this is the city or the small community of Saint something. So a lot of the small towns in Quebec City are all named after saints. You know, Saint Michel, Saint Bernadette, whatever. And uh, then the priest would head back to town. 
and then the community would just build from there. So uh, there's always a bit of, it seems there's always been a bit of bitterness towards the clergy uh, in, in in Quebec history. And uh, because like most uh, things that are Christian, they've always stood on the side of uh, authority. And if there's something that Quebecers are known for is for being shit disturbers. And when they're not happy with their government, they're not happy. That's, that's why they're there, because they left France. That's right. <laughs> but in a way, yeah. <laughs> um so uh in 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 Quebec you know it's it's religion is not worn on the sleeve like it is here. Um it's a bit it's a bit like sex, right? I mean everybody does it but nobody really talks about it. You know, everybody, everybody knows they're Catholic and they go to mass probably never, you know, maybe maybe it's not something you you talk about. So whenever when I moved here to BC it was quite shocking for me to see how people just wear that on their sleeve. And it's even more shocking when I hear stuff from the States and saying, you know, people meet you, even myself, you know, when I was driving I was going down the States and people were saying, Oh, what church do you go to? <laughs> what do you mean? you know? So it was it was a shocking thing. Uh at that point, uh around my teenage years, not like you, Jeff, uh, you know, I was dumber than you obviously, uh by the time I got to my teenage years, my mom would always drag me to church, and I hated going to church. It's that one day a week where you're wearing that horrible sweater that nobody likes, but you have to somewhat look good for God for some reason. And uh, you go to church, and I was, I was, you know, doing the motion like everybody else. And I'm looking around, and I'm, a thought occurred to me, and it was, none of these people actually believe this. They're all doing the motion, you know, all you standing and you're sitting, and now you're kneeling and you're standing. The the hymn, everything seemed robotic. You know, it was, it, there, there was no passion. You could not feel any passion. If you actually truly believed what you were singing your praise to the Lord, you could not feel it. And as a young teen, I'm looking at these people, I'm actually disgusted with it. Um, when I was a kid, uh, my brother had a very small Bible, um, Bible for kids in a way, right? And I read that book like twice. And I thought it was very fascinating because all the passages uh, were like, stuff right on mythology, right? Uh, one of my favorite was like Samson the Judge. He was like Hercules, you know, this really strong man pushing down the pillars and he, they had this wonderful picture and half a page of text and it told you most of the story and I knew that book inside out and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. So the idea of actually being real at the same time was even more fascinating for me because that's what I thought as a kid. Uh, so move forward to that and then uh, when I came back to Quebec, uh, Around my uh, my high school years, um, I remember this one moment where you know I'm living life every day as a teenager. Religion is not a factor; it's just not. And this this teacher comes in one day, and this is uh, around the uh, Iraqi War, uh, the first Iraqi War. And uh, he he comes in and he says uh, he wants to do a prayer in the middle of chemistry class. He wants to do a prayer because at the time, you know, Saddam Hussein and the Americans are going to war, and he's calling Saddam Hussein uh, the 20th century Hitler. And he, he, he starts to do a prayer, and I started doing the sign of the cross myself. And then I caught myself, and I was embarrassed to do that. And I was the only thing I could think of is, oh my God, did anybody else in the class see me do this? And I was very, very embarrassed as a, as a, as a teenager to have done that. And that was part of what helped me deconvert as well. Move forward again around uh, 18, 19 years old. Around my birthday, I was always in the martial arts from the get-go. So I was trying to do meditation, right? I had mo- I, I, and I was sitting under a tree trying to meditate one day on my birthday in the woods. 
trying to meditate because I don't think I ever actually did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then I had, for lack of a better word, I had a what I would call almost a vision. I, I was an image popped in my mind of an old dusty Bible, right? And for some reason, it shattered like glass. And then I, I kind of woke up from this quote-unquote dream, quote-unquote vision, call it what you want, and I realized, oh my God, I don't believe in this shit. It took me a while. It really took me a while. And even at that point, I was not willing to say there's no God. I was just not willing to say there's no Jesus. There's no Abrahamic God, you know. There might have been some Jesus fella or whatever, you know. But there certainly wasn't no guy that was walking on water and stuff like that. But there was probably some force, some nebulous force of the cosmos or something. And I kind of stood in that woo area for a while there. Fast forward as well for many, many, many years and decade. It's in the back of my mind. I don't think about it. I'm not praying about it. Once in a while, I'm doing the, hey, you know, the force of the universe listening to me right now, I could use some help with this or that situation. And then I finally eventually moved to BC. Now, when I moved to BC, I, I became even more of an activist than I was uh, in Quebec because uh, what you need to understand uh, one of the reasons I'm an activist uh, so much is uh, I grew up like that. Like every Friday or every second Friday, we had demonstrations in front of the Parliament building in Quebec City. And that was a normal thing to do through high school. This is not something you guys do here at all. But I grew up with this stuff. You know, strikes in the middle of school, all the students sitting down doing a sit-in. I did that. This is something you never ever hear of. Jeff, did you ever do that? No. No, exactly. You, don't, you, get, you guys don't do that here. But anyway, that was part of the reason why I was an activist. And I was, I was watching documentaries. I've always loved documentaries. And then I thought, you know, I should really like to show um, to people well, what's the reason behind a lot of problems. So I started with a group called Cinema Politica, uh, which we talked about in one of our podcasts. Uh, and I was essentially showing documentaries for free for people and trying to have a discussion afterwards and discussing if if it was true or not from a skeptical point of view. Is this too far-fetched? You know, what are the reasons behind this? I, I tried to establish that group and do these screenings in Abbotsford and Mission. It never really took there. It took off in Maple Ridge, but it didn't take off over here. At the time when I was doing these uh, screenings from Cinema Politica, uh, the villain always seemed to be the corporation. The corporate world, the industrial world, was always the villain. And, I, and then I started thinking, okay... Well, there's got to be something a bit deeper to that. So when I started digging a bit more deep into it, I realized that the villain was not just a corporation, but what gave the corporation and the people behind them the power. What, why, why did they start thinking that it was all right for them to come in and pollute a river and chop off the top of a mountain, dig everything out? And I realized that this one line in the Bible, the one line that says, you know, God gives you dominion over the earth. You know, and I realized, oh my God, it all came down to religion. And this is where I actually really became, the atheist in me really came out. I realized, there is my villain. You know, I thought for all these years it was the corporate world, but it is a corporate world in some ways, but they're also motivated by religious belief, especially the Christian dominant. And fast forward, here we are, found the FVS group, and now, boom, we're doing the Left of the Valley podcast. And that's in a nutshell is my deconversion story. <laughs> You've had a journey. Yeah, it's sure. quite the journey, and you know, I I wish I was 
smart as you, like you guys have <laughs> known from day one, but it took me a while to get there. I don't know if I'd say it's smart. I, I didn't have the um, experiences that you did in terms of the, the cultural impact of, of living in Quebec and having Catholicism is such a big thing. And it, I never had that experience. So well, I, I don't know if I, I just might have had a little bit of a head start. I, I think it's a, it's a big thing, but it's a big thing, you know, maybe on the architectural level. It's not a big thing in your everyday life. I mean, I might have some arguments with my, some of my uh, older aunts today. You know, like, for example, I had an argument with her on Facebook about because they were talking about taking the nativity scene out. <coughs> and I had to explain to them that, you know, government needs to stay neutral. And they didn't quite understand that. And, they, and, you know, she said, well, it's tradition, you know, and the same arguments we always hear. You know, and I told her, I said, well, you know, it was tradition for women not to vote. Should we go back to that, too? <laughs> And of course, she got really angry at me. But you know, <laughs> I kind of made my point. Uh, the 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 religion religion aspect in Quebec is not in your everyday life. It's in it's in the environment, but same thing as are the trees. They're in the environment, you know. But it's not something that's in front of your mind all the time, except for maybe a smaller minority of the population. What what, what do we think as a group? I mean, I I I've been, you know, over the past probably ten years. Um, thinking very optimistically about the future of the world uh, with respect to religion, I, I would I would think it's it's all about knowledge, and I would think that the people that still believe in these old myths don't have the the all the knowledge that maybe we have. So I thought the internet, uh, smartphones, uh, you know, media, just the full access of information, you know, universally across the planet would have such a huge impact. I mean. The Arab Spring started um, uh, on Facebook, I think, as yeah. a flash mob. Hey, guys, let's do this. And they just, boom, it's just, they, mo- they, they mobilized um, a typically fearful group of people to actually do a, a coup on the government. And I thought, hey, man, this is, this is what it's all about. But I don't know, do we still see that happening? Or, I mean, what's happening out there? Well, um, I've heard apparently Rwanda has a growing atheist community ever since the whole... Uh, Really? Genocide, uh, and, um, and actually, the, um, you mentioned earlier about uh, you know more women and minorities in our Canadian Parliament. Well, they've got fifty-fifty males and females in their government. So, well, way to go! Yeah. Way so, go. If, if it can happen in Rwanda, you know, maybe it can happen here. Well, I know in the U.S., it's a very it's they're they're probably the most theocratic Western democracy. Um, the the this is, came out from the Pew Pew Forum uh, Research Forum like last week. Um, Atheist, or actually, it's not called atheist. It's um, unaffiliated. So that's atheist, agnostic, everybody, you know, all these people. That's the largest religious group in the U.S. now is unaffiliated. Yeah. Large, larger than the Christians, larger than the than everybody. It's it's way bigger than we think. You know, even just that 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 percentage. It's interesting to, to realize that, uh, especially in the states, they don't realize the amount of power that the non-believers do, actually have. Uh, because, for example, um, I think I think the black population in the states is somewhere like twenty uh, percent. Of the uh, of the American population, and they have their lobby groups. Uh, same thing with the gays. I think there's like sixteen percent, and they have their lobby group. But the non-believer is actually it's like like you said, it's it's way bigger than those percentages, and there is nobody speaking for them to the politicians. That'll be the next tipping point. You know, I mean, uh, in, I, I follow U.S. politics. I, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say more than I do Canadian politics. It's just I guess that's my reality TV that I watch is U.S. politics. Um, and you know you've seen you've seen the scales tip on same sex marriage 
that that's already happened. It's yeah. it's already happened. It's being it's going to be you know accepted across the U.S. I think the next thing is going to be marijuana. That's going to be the next thing that's 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 that reaches a tipping point. I think the one after that is atheism, where where you see a congressman, a senator, a, a representative of the House, or maybe even a presidential candidate come out and actually affirm that they do not believe in God and and just go. And and I I mean we've already seen people. After the fact, I forget his name. Uh, what's his name? Dodd? Dodd Frank? Or Dodd Frank? No, Frank. What's his name? Frank? Barney Frank. Bar- Barney Franks. Bar- Barney Frank. So Barney Franks, after he left the, the, uh, the Congress, then he came out and said, I'm yeah. gay and I'm an atheist. So that's, that's something. I mean, you know that there's, uh, there's 100 senators and there's like 450 you know, House of Representatives. So you've got 550 Congress people and 20% of the U.S. population is unaffiliated. So that means there's at least 100. Just by, just by the sheer number. Yeah. Just, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that are, are keeping their little secret. So um, that'll be the next tipping point for me as far as uh, a major player in, in political power, somebody coming out. And you can totally tell too, right? As the, as more educated the uh, population becomes, the more uh, towards non-belief they shift as well. And this is why right now you're seeing Christianity. Well, take Christianity for example, is you know losing here in North America, but they're making huge gains in places like Africa, where the population is still very, very poor and very, very uneducated. And as the other front they're fighting down the states is that's why the Christian right is trying so hard to fight everything science. They do realize that education is the key, and the more people know, the more they start realizing that God does not make any sense at all. You know, the more knowledgeable they become, they realize that all God's power disappears. It, it sounds it sounds a bit demeaning to say this, but just to echo your point that you just made, I, I remember a, a line in uh, Richard Dawkins' um, God Delusion book. He referred to um, a uh, a guy named Paul Bell, and he did a uh, he wrote a paper where he analyzed about fifty studies, and all these studies looked at the correlation between IQ and education and and belief in God, and they were. They were all but one, uh, like 48 of the studies showed an inverse correlation. So the higher your IQ, the less likely you were to believe. The higher education, the less likely you are to believe. So, I mean, I know sometimes it can come off as sounding a bit arrogant, like I'm yeah. smarter than you because, because I, I don't believe in you do. And we should point out that correlation is not causation, but I understand what you're saying, right? It's, that, that, that's you can't stag- help but think, hmm. staggering, Staggering information when you have, you know, 48 studies over the course of like 30 years that all say the same thing. Um, at some point, it's telling you something. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. Thank you for so for all this. Yeah. Time for Moran. <laughs> all right. Well, you gotta have faith. You've heard the line. It's one of those lines the religious give you in a futile attempt to sell you that faith is something that is precious or even essential. I could use the tongue-in-cheek response that we're all born atheists. And uh, that religion uses our natural naivete when we are young to sink its claws into our psyche. But it's unfortunately all too true and a dangerous thing too. Personally, I think there are very few true believers out there. What else explains how supposed believers go through their entire life praising their Jewish carpenter but somehow never attempt to read the instruction manual of their savior? Don't they know their immortal soul rests in the balance? No, I think they just never truly pondered and questioned their reality and the thought that the willing suspension of critical thinking, or if you prefer faith, is a horrible way to determine truth, and that terrifies them. How do you tell someone they've been duped all their life? I truly believe that religion must die for mankind to move forward, and that will happen when we reach that tipping point. 
Deconversion happens when one embraces rational thought and intellectual honesty. It happens when you stare into the abyss of the unknown and have the guts to say, I don't know. Because unlike believers, when the scary unknown stared right back at you, you, my friend, didn't blink and run into superstition. You're an atheist, and you should be proud of that. All right. <laughs> this is the first time I'm getting applause for this. Woohoo! <laughs> well said. Well, that takes us to the end of our show. Guys, I want to thank you so much for being here. And uh, our next show, we actually have a, uh, a um, Daryl Ray, The Myth of Sexual Addiction. So hopefully you guys will join us for that. <laughs> Sarah just looked at me and said, yeah. Tell our stories. <laughs> if you want. <laughs> you can follow us at uh, leftatthevalley.com. You can go on Facebook and follow us. You can go to Blog Talk. If you sign up on Blog Talk, they will send you an email whenever the show is about to air. We're also on Spreaker now. Anything else you guys want to add to this? Yes, please. Anybody that would like the book, um, A Manual for Creating Atheists, please let us know so we can get a book sent out to you. It's a real treasure to have. So I hope we get a lot of people who respond. Yeah, we have three of them. The first three, we'll get a book. We'll send it out to you. Thank you, guys. Until next time. Such power.